So a question as we get started. Have you ever noticed how many different versions are held up in front of us of what Christianity really is and what it's really supposed to look like? Let me just give you two examples that come to my mind. I'm sure there are many that come to your mind as well. One is the picture of the mobs that smashed their way into the Capitol building, shouting, if you love Jesus, shout, and everybody cheering, praying together in the rotunda, marching under a banner that says, Jesus saves. And another banner that says, God, guns, and guts made America. Let's keep all three. Is that sort of extremist religious nationalism? Is that what Christianity is? Let me give, it, give you another example that's a little more subtle. After the racial protests that struck our country last summer, yard signs began to show up in front of some of our area churches that said, in the rainbow colors of the LGBTQ movement, we believe black lives matter, no human is illegal, love is love, women's rights are human rights, science is real, water is life, and injustice anywhere is a threat to, just, inju to justice everywhere. I mean, so much of that sounds so right, but when that becomes a core philosophy, rather than a posture of relating with grace, when it describes kind of an indiscriminate acceptance of anything and everything, is that kind of liberal relativism what Christianity is? So what really is at the heart of the Christian faith? What is the good news? For the past couple of months, we've been walking through Paul's short letter to the church in Philippi, and as you've probably noticed, as we've walked along and, and explored some of the different themes that show up in Paul's letter, Paul keeps circling back around to this thing called the gospel, the good news. He says in 1.5 that they are partners together in it in 1.7 and again in 1.16 that he is defending it and confirming it in 1.12. He says he's working to advance it. In 127, he says that they are to live lives worthy of it. And also in 127, he says that they should strive together for the sake of it. And that's just in chapter one. And on that theme goes throughout the rest of the letter. So what is it? What is this good news to which they have devoted their lives together and which is supposed to give shape to our lives as followers of Christ? Well, that's where Paul takes the conversation next in his letter to the church in Philippi, and that's where we'll be following him and taking the conversation this Sunday and next Sunday. So I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now, some of you at this point, some of you who are staying really tuned in are going, so wait a minute, what happened to chapter 2, verses 19 to 30? Well, um, you may remember that early on in our sermon series, we talked about one of the things that happens every time the Spirit of God moves, in addition to growing up us, us up in Christ and sending us out to share Christ, one of the things the Spirit always does is to gather us together in a koinonia, in a, in a participation, a family 
of shared purpose and shared affection that centers on the gospel. And at that point, we pointed to those two examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus, good friends of Paul's, who are partners with him in, in carrying out his ministry. All right, so Paul um, will be picking up where he left off in chapter 2, verse 18, and there he's speaking of the joy that is ours in Christ. You remember Brentley preached on that last Sunday. So Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things. And I do it to safeguard your faith. Watch out for those dogs, those, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say that we must be circumcised to be saved. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort. Although I could have confidence in my own effort, if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if ever there was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought these things were valuable, and now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness though obeying, uh, through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. And then the conclusion of the section, which we'll be exploring next Sunday on Easter Sunday, verses 10 and 11, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead, and I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. All right, let's walk back through this. Verse 1, whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things. And I do it to safeguard your faith. You can almost picture Paul pausing there and beginning to follow another line of thought. Safeguarding our faith. Speaking of that, I've been writing up to this point about how to live out the Christian faith. Well, let me just take you back and remind you what the heart of the Christian faith really is. And that's important because there are people out there who are presenting a false version of the Christian faith, and you've got to watch out for them because some of them sound really convincing. Well, in this case, as he's writing to the Philippians, Paul is cautioning them about a group of people who came from a Jewish background, who converted into the Christian faith, but who never abandoned their Jewish footing as a way of being right with God. And rather than trusting in what Jesus did for them, for him to make them right with God, they're relying instead, putting their confidence instead on their own effort and their own uh, works. So Paul says in verse 2, watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say that you must be circumcised to be saved. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. So turning the, uh, the terms that they would use to denigrate others back on them 
Paul says to watch out for people who distort the Christian faith, who present it as something that it isn't. So just pause for a moment with me and think about some of the versions of Christianity that are being presented to us here in the United States. Religiosity, going to church is what it means to be a Christian. Nationalism, being a patriotic American is what it means to be a Christian. Moralism, being a good person is what it means to be a Christian. Judgmentalism, being judgmental and unwelcoming and separate from others is what it means to be a Christian. Or liberal relativism, being morally inclusive and blindly accepting of any and every position is being a Christian. So let me just pause here and ask you this question. What are some of the ways that you have been led to think, either through your upbringing or through the messages you're getting from the culture around you, what are the ways that you've been led to think about what is really at the heart of Christianity? Watch out, Paul says. Be on your guard. For those who present a version of Christianity that isn't authentic, so when it comes to the real good news, what is it? What is at the heart of the Christian faith? And how do we enter into that? How do we experience that? That's what we'll be focusing on in the rest of this morning and as we look at these next six or eight verses together. But let me just uh, confuse matters a little bit. Because of, of the specific version of Christianity that Paul is addressing, these Judaizers who are coming along and undermining the idea of being saved by grace through faith, Paul starts with how we experience the good news and not what the good news is. Because some of our versions of Christianity that we're presented with are a little different. I'm going to invert that and come at it the other way around. So we'll be um, looking at this uh, by changing the order around a little bit. So first of all, what is the heart of the gospel? What is the good news that we are called to believe and to live out and to share with others? You find the heart of it in verse 8. Everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The good news isn't about how to be religious, not at all. It isn't about how to be good, not at first. It is all about knowing Jesus, having a relationship with him. Okay, let me just pause here for a second. What is the most basic way that you envision your relationship with God? For some of us, if we are really honest with ourselves, we might admit that this is the way that we think about God and our interactions with him. God is like a vending machine. Think about how our relationship with a vending machine works. I have a need. The vending machine has something that I want. I give it something of value, something that I've worked for, something that I've earned. And when I've given it enough, then in return, this machine gives me the thing that I want. I tell it what I want, and out it comes. This is the normal human starting point when we think about God, and has been for millennia, even since long before anybody ever invented a Pepsi machine. I have a need to find a job, to, to make the team, to get accepted to the school that I want to attend, to be healed, to have a child, to be free of an addiction, or any of a hundred other needs. 
God has what I want. He has the power to give me what I desire. So I give him something. I give him something of value, something that I work for. I strive, I do something for him in order to earn what I want from God. I pray sincerely, or I read the Bible, or I attend church regularly, or I make some kind of sacrifice, trying to please God by being a good person. And then, when I've given enough, when I've done enough, when I've become good enough, then in return, God will give me the thing that I want. Any of you recognize that way of thinking? That sound familiar to you? As common as it is for us to think about a relationship with God in that way, what Paul writes in verse 8 of chapter 3 about the essence of the good news smashes apart that way of thinking. God is not a machine that I owe. God is a person that I know. This is me with my dear friend Danny Sharp. We got to spend a day together at Red River Gorge about a year ago, right before, about a week before the COVID thing uh, began to spread. So let me just ask, if there are any kids left in the room? There are a few of you. Who is a good friend that you have? You might even think about, I think some of you got a clipboard when you came in. You might think about drawing a picture of you with your good friend. I'd love to see that. You all have heard me talk about Danny before. Some of you have had a chance to meet him when he has been here. Danny is one of my Covenant Group brothers, and he's been probably my closest friend uh, ever since seminary, which is more than 30 years. It's hard to believe. So think about how our relationship with a friend works. I love spending time with Danny. And he tells me that he enjoys spending time with me, too. We have regular times that are planned for us to connect, to talk, and we get together whenever we can. I want him to know the things that are going on in my life. I want him to be aware of the things that I'm thinking about or struggling with. I'm completely open and honest with him, and I always invite and welcome his wisdom and his insight. He knows my failures and my shortcomings better than anybody else on the planet apart from my wife. And somehow, he still loves me and accepts me and even enjoys me. I'm so grateful for him, and I express that to him often. This right here, this idea that we are invited into a relationship with the king of the universe, that we can know Christ Jesus our Lord, this is the thing that makes the good news so great. You may be aware that in the ancient world, there were a lot of different religions that are called mystery religions. And they also focused on this word knowing as well. But in the mystery religions, knowing meant having a lot of knowledge, not having a relationship. I think sometimes we evangelicals can fall into approaching the faith in that way. Focusing a whole lot on what we know about God and acquiring more information about God rather than focusing on our relationship with him. The heart of the Christian faith isn't what we know about God. It is about knowing God, being in relationship with him in the same sort of way that we know and love our spouse or our family members or our friends. What is the good news? Well, at the heart of it, 
The good news is that the God of the universe has visited us in order to open up the way for us to be in a love relationship with him now and for eternity. So kids, those of you who are still here with us, I want you to draw me another picture, this time of you with Jesus. I wonder where you would picture yourself with him, and I wonder what you would picture yourself doing. I'd love to see that picture. Maybe you could share it with your mom and dad, and they could take a picture of it and send it to me. I'd love to see that. At the heart of the faith is a relationship. Knowing Jesus the King. Paul elaborates on that idea of knowing Jesus with two other phrases in the following verse. Gain Christ and become one with him. Gaining Christ looks at knowing Jesus from our perspective. It's about how we receive him, how we come to know him. We receive the gain, the gift of a resident friend and and in our heart counselor, an indwelling king, Emmanuel, God with us. We carry him with us as we go through life. Our heart has become his home. In my devotional time a few days ago, I was just thinking about what it meant for me to gain Christ. And these phrases started popping in my head and I wrote them down. Here's uh, what I wrote. Jesus, through whom I see, without whom I am blind. Jesus, by whom I stand, without whom I fall. Jesus, in whom I rest, without whom I strive. Jesus, by whom I'm quenched and satisfied, without whom I hunger and thirst. Jesus, with whom I walk, without whom I'm alone. Jesus, in whom I am found, without whom I am lost. Jesus, for whom I live, without whom I resort to living only for me. Jesus, in whom I have all things, without whom I have and am. So gaining Christ looks at knowing Jesus from our perspective, becoming one with him. The NIV follows the Greek more closely when it says being found in him, looks at it from his perspective. It's about how he receives us when we come to know him. He takes us into himself, into his life, into his kingdom. We find our life in him. He carries us with him as we go through life. His heart has become our home. I mentioned a few weeks ago that Sharon's mom, Margie Pritchett, has moved in with us. She has her own apartment set up in our basement. In case you're looking for her, that's where she can be found. But it's not just an address. It has become her home. That's what Paul is getting at here when he talks about being found in Christ. Just as our hearts have become his home, so his heart has become our home. So a question for you. What is the basic way that you think about your relationship with God? Like a vending machine that you get stuff from? Or a person whose friendship you enjoy? Paul says that Knowing Jesus, gaining Jesus, being found in Jesus, that is worth more than everything else that this world has to offer and more. Picking up in verse 7, I once thought these things were valuable, but now now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. 
For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him or be found in him. So compared with knowing Christ, Paul says, everything else is garbage. Actually, this word refers to the very worst sort of garbage. It is what we flush down the toilet. It's what we pick up after our dog. It is what we find rotting in the back of the refrigerator and grind up in the disposal while we're holding our noses. Jesus is not saying that nothing else has value, that the world is full of worthless things and life is full of worthless pursuits. Not at all. But he's saying that compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus, it is as though everything else is fit only to be put out on the curb. So Jesus and what we have in him far exceeds everything else that this world has to offer. A part in the play, a position on the team, the friendship circle that we want, the, the school of our choice, family, children, travel, adventure, accomplishment, careers, riches, awards, promotions, raises, publications, possessions, positions. Knowing Jesus is greater than any of those things and all of them together by far. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy he went and sold everything that he had and bought that field. What's your greatest treasure? Okay, so how does this become our experience? If knowing and loving Jesus is the essence of the Christian life, and if being in a relationship with the king of the universe surpasses all else that this world has to offer, then how does that become my experience? How do I enter into that relationship? Those who distort the Christian faith will lead us to think that it hangs on us. It hangs on our effort, how good we are, how good our good works are. Not so, says Paul. Our relationship with Jesus doesn't stand or fall on us at all. It stands entirely on him. Verses two and three, we rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put our confidence, we put no confidence in human effort. When it comes to our dealings with God, Paul says, we as Christians rely on what Jesus did for us, not on what we do for him. So what did Jesus do for us? Well, at the heart of it is he laid down his life for us. And Paul doesn't elaborate on what that accomplished for us here in this letter. He just kind of assumes the implications of those things. But the, what that accomplished for us is spelled out in other places in other letters in the New Testament. According to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, he forgives our sins through his death on the cross. According to John chapter 3, verse, six, verse 16, he gives us eternal life. According to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, he reconciles us to God. And according to 1 John chapter 3, he folds us into a family of faith and gives us brothers and sisters, each other. And then Paul gets personal. He starts to share about his own experience. We put no confidence in human effort, he says, Though I could have confidence in my effort if anybody could, indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. And then he gives us the list of his spotless religious credentials. 
his family lineage, his religious affiliation, his zeal, his discipline, his obedience. But then he dismisses the whole lot of it. I once thought those things were valuable, but now, now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. Last week, I was struck in my reading through the Gospel of Matthew in my morning devotion time to come across the juxtaposition of two passages. Listen to these. First, Matthew chapter 23, Jesus says, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and they put them on other people's shoulders. Then he says in Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 28, come to me all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's only one way to enter into a relationship with the king of the universe. It is by putting aside any thought that our effort makes us right with God and putting our trust in him, opening up our heart to him, receiving the gift that he means to give us, which is the gift of himself, and taking him at his word, putting our confidence in him. That's what faith means. It means, I trust you. It is a profoundly relational word. It means something much closer to, I throw myself into your arms and trust you to catch me than I give intellectual assent to a few things that are true about you. So as we wrap up, a few questions for you to ponder. First, for those of you who are already followers of Christ, when you think about loving your neighbors, the people that God has placed right around you, which is one of the main focuses that we have as a church these days, when you think about sharing your faith with those people, what sort of image comes to your mind? Do you sort of feel like you're trying to get reluctant children to take some bad-tasting medicine that you know is good for them, but they don't? Or are you introducing them to your best friend whose presence in your life has changed everything? Sharing our faith, faith, sharing our faith means offering to the world something infinitely greater than anything that this world has to offer, a personal relationship with the king of the universe who walks with us through each day, comforting us and cheering us with his love, guiding us with his wisdom, strengthening us with his presence, working in us by his spirit to make us more into the women and men that he created us to be from the start. How would it change your view of loving your neighbor if that was the way that you thought about it? Second, for those of you who came into today's service from outside of the Christian faith, How does it change your understanding of Christianity to learn that it is not concerned first with keeping God's moral standard, but with being in relationship with God? What's standing in the way of you opening up your heart to Jesus and receiving him today? And then finally, for those of you who grew up in a Christian home, it's possible that your well-meaning mom and dad put more emphasis on you going to church and being good as you were growing up 
rather than helping you cultivate your relationship with Jesus. I grew up in a Christian home, but somehow I missed completely this most basic idea that Christianity is about having a relationship with Jesus. So has there ever been a time when you just threw yourself into Jesus' arms in trust? When you let him become more important to you than your friends, your sports, your grades, your careers? I can tell you after having rejected my parents' faith early on, and then having wandered around in atheism for a while, and then having come to Christ, I agree with Paul that there is nothing that even remotely compares with a relationship with Jesus in which I walk with him through each day, enjoying his company, standing in his grace and mercy, living for him and with him. So parents, you may want to have another follow-up conversation after this morning's message to just make sure that what is really at the heart of the Christian faith has gotten through to your kids. Kids, you may want to have that conversation with your parents. It isn't being a good person, but being God's friend that is at the heart of the Christian faith. Is that your experience? Do you want that to be your experience? All you need to do is talk to him and to tell him that's what you want, to know him, to gain him, to be found in him. So what would keep you from taking that step today? Today we celebrate Palm Sunday when crowds of people came out and lined the streets and shouted as Jesus rode by on a donkey. This wasn't a parade. It was a welcome reception. When the crowd shouted, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. When they shouted, Hosanna, rescue us, save us. They were not cheering him on as he passed by. They were welcoming him in. Has there ever been a time when you welcomed Jesus? When you invited him to be more important to you than everything else this world has to offer. How about today? Would you pray with me?